little over 28 years ago, as many of you know, I began my journey with Jesus. And that has been, this has been the most amazing 28 years. The, the adventure, the excitement, the satisfaction is something I couldn't possibly describe to you. And I think one of the things that makes this Christian journey so fulfilling is the wide range of emotions and experiences that God leads us through. You know, there's joys and there's sorrows. And, and I think some Christians make the mistake of maybe, you know, because there is great weighty things at stake, like your eternity, they make the mistake, I think, sometimes of being so serious and so somber to the point of lacking joy. And, and I think other Christians say, oh, Jesus paid it all, and, and you know, I don't have to worry about anything, and, and they go through life without sensing the weightiness of this journey, and, and it almost becomes frivolous. And I think we have to, as Christians on this journey, hold both of those things in tension. Solomon in Ecclesiastes wrote, there's a time for every purpose under heaven. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to rejoice. And today, I get the privilege of teaching about something that happens in chapter 7 of Acts involving the first martyr, Stephen. And what happens is he's accused of a capital offense. And he's sentenced to death and he's stoned to death. Now that is a very weighty thing. And as I reflected on that this week, I wanted to try to communicate because none of us yet, obviously, have experienced that moment. What's it going to be like? How can I get us in the right frame of mind for that, for that weighty time that we will all experience? And I thought back to a movie I saw in the 90s, and it's called Dead Man Walking. And it's a true story of a young thug who was in and out of the juvenile detention system, and then uh, as a young adult, brutally murders a young couple. He gets sentenced to prison, or excuse me, gets sentenced to lethal injection in Louisiana. While he's on death row in Louisiana, a nun there in New Orleans befriends him. Her name was Helen Prejean. And they made a movie about this relationship and how over the course of a couple of years, she shares the love of Christ with the dead man walking played by Sean Penn. And the final scene is the execution scene. And I think it embodies and captures some of the most dramatic moments that surround this great event. And so we're going to watch that. Any last words, Ponsler? Yes, sir, I do. Mr. Delcroix, I don't want to leave this world with any hate in my heart. I ask your forgiveness for what I've done. It was a terrible thing I've done, taking your son away from you. Mr. and Mrs. Percy, I hope my death gives you some relief. I just want to say, 
I think killing is wrong. No matter who does it, whether it's me or y'all or your government. I think we can agree those are powerful images. They capture the drama and the emotion of this event that each and every one of us will one day experience. So the question becomes, how do we as Christians view this event we call death? That's what we're going to talk about today, among some other things. But first, let's get started with a word of prayer. Father, my friends at Rock Hills this morning, they don't need to hear from me. Father, they need to hear from you. And so, Father, please, would you let me get out of the way so that your word and your truth can go forth and accomplish what you desire in their hearts and their souls. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are now in our seventh week in this series. We're calling Acts the next chapter. We're doing a chapter a week in the book of Acts. And you probably remember several weeks ago we started in chapter 1. And the book of Acts picks up right after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. All the new believers are waiting in Jerusalem, and Jesus is there, and he says, wait here, the Holy Spirit will be coming. The Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost. Amazing things begin to happen in the city of Jerusalem. The church grows dramatically, and grumbling starts among the Jewish authorities. They don't like this. This new group of people called Christians is threatening their authority and their position. And so in chapter 5, we see that all the apostles are brought in. And they're basically put on trial, and they're not quite sure what to do with them. And at the end of that trial, a man named Gamaliel says, Look, let's not kill these folks, because if this is of God, it's going to continue no matter what. If it's not of God, it's going to die. And so they flog them. They whip them all. And if you've ever seen the the last, uh, you know, the, the Passion of the Christ, you get some idea of what that looks like. And then they're set free. Well, just a couple of chapters later, chapter 7, Stephen is still around one of the followers. He's up by the temple, and he's still sharing the truth of Christ despite what happened to the apostles. And so I'm going to summarize chapter 7, but it really begins in chapter 6. Chapter 7 does, because what happens is the Jewish authorities decide to trump up a charge. Now, that's not a political statement. They decide to trump up a charge against, uh, against this believer, this follower of Christ, and accuse him of a capital offense, blasphemy, punishable by death. They bring in some false witnesses. So let's take a look, and I think we have these scripture from chapter 6 of uh, Acts. And it's the charge that they're bringing against Stephen. And it goes like this. 
So they stirred up the people and the elders and teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now you can summarize these charges as basically this guy Stephen He is testifying against the law. What he's saying is not consistent with the law. He's a rebel. He's a sinner. He's disobeying God. And this is all totally untrue. And so in chapter 7, Stephen is basically put on the witness stand, and he goes into this long speech. And the essence of his speech is, I'm not the one that's disobeying God. I'm not the one that's that's the rebel. You all are, you Jewish authorities, and I'm going to show you from the Old Testament. So the whole of chapter 7 is Stephen laying out a history of the Jewish nation. And you need to read chapter 7. It's a wonderful chapter. It gives you great insight. It's a great summary of the whole Old Testament. And so that is his defense. And he starts, as you would normally, with the very beginning, with the calling of Abraham. And then he goes to Moses, or excuse me, then he goes to Joseph, and he shows how Joseph and his brothers were rebels. And he goes to Moses, and he, and he shows how Moses and the Jewish people disobeyed God and rebelled against God. And on and on through Jewish history, including David rebelling against God, including the whole Jewish nation rebelling against God and murdering the very prophets that God sends to get them back on the right path. And over and over, he demonstrates throughout chapter 7 that the Jewish nation has a history of rebellion and that the new leaders of Jerusalem that he's in front of continue that same tradition by murdering the Messiah. And that's his defense. And they go berserk and they stone Stephen to death. Now there's 60 verses in chapter 7. Just to read it would take several minutes. And so I've, I've studied it this week, and, and just so you know, when, when Adam or I or Stephen, when we preach, this is often what we do. We get a passage that we're called on to preach, and we study it, and we, we pray, and we try to get in touch with what God would have us communicate. Because there's literally dozens of things that I could talk about in this chapter 7. And, and through prayer and, and trying to understand and discern what God would have me teach about this particular chapter, there's three messages that I heard from God this week that I felt he wanted to communicate through this chapter 7. First, there's a message of encouragement. Second, there's a message of warning. And third, there's a message of comfort. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Message of encouragement message of warning, and a message of comfort. So let's begin with a message of encouragement. And that is found, I believe, in chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. And the scripture says this. Stephen is talking, and he replied to these charges by saying, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people. 
God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. So what you need to understand, first of all, is that Abraham was living in Mesopotamia, and that was well known to be an area of sun worship. He was probably a sun worshiper. In other words, he was following false gods and false idols. Now, why would God pick Abraham as the man to begin this people that he's going to raise up? No no one knows. It's God's grace. And, And this is a practice that God continues throughout his dealings with his people, showing grace and being the one to initiate and choose. And he does that with Abraham. And he gives Abraham three instructions. He says, leave your country, leave your people, and go to the place that I'm going to show you. And what we find out is Abraham does leave his country, but he doesn't leave his people, and he doesn't go to the place where he's supposed to go. Now, how is this a message of encouragement? You see this here. He says, he, he, God said, leave your country and your people. God said, go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans. So that's the thing he did right. But he settled in Haran. He didn't go all the way to the promised land. That's where God was showing him. He stopped. And then it says, after the death of his father. He was supposed to go alone. He wasn't supposed to bring his people. He was supposed to leave his people. So he has three assignments. Leave your country, leave your people, go to the promised land. He gets two of them wrong. And this begins a pattern God has with his people. God is a God of grace, and he's long-suffering and forgiving. This is his character. And we see this demonstrated, I think, really clearly in Exodus. Let's go to Exodus 34. And God is dealing with Moses. And this is what happens. He passes, and he passed in front of Moses, talking about God, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God himself passes in front of Moses, and look how he describes his character. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. You know, many people including some Christians I know, seem to have this image of God as this kind of this mean old man sitting up in heaven, just kind of grumpy, just looking for someone to judge and be mean to. That isn't the way the Bible describes God's character. It just isn't. In fact, Hebrews 1 has a verse that I just love, and Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the exact representation of God's character. Whenever you want to think of What is the character of my father, God of the universe, like? Just think of Jesus as he's revealed in the Gospels. And think of this verse. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's gracious. He forgives wickedness. Folks, I experienced this. For 37 years, I was a proclaimed atheist. I I mocked Christians. I rebelled against God. I disobeyed God. 
I was wicked in some of the things I did. And for 37 years, God did nothing but love me. And then when I was 37, God sent me to this beautiful young woman named Jan. And over the course of a a few years, through her consistent love, through her faith in God, and through her family's faith in God, her mom, Iris, who's here today, through their consistent love and faithfulness and demonstrating the love of Jesus, over and over, God forgave me and gave me another chance. And yes, at the age of 37, I decided to follow Jesus and gave my life to him. But it was only because he was slow to anger and gracious to me. And what a word of encouragement to all of us. We all fall short. We all rebel. But God is good and gracious in the way he deals with us. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. Now, the second word we have, we see in verses 39 through 42, and it's a little bit different word. It's actually a word of warning. And let's see what that looks like. And so the, the background for this is as Stephen's teaching through the history of Israel, he's saying, don't forget, Moses was guided out of the slavery in Egypt. And he, that happened miraculously. You may remember God parted the Red Sea. And then God led his people through the desert, miraculously giving them water, miraculously giving them food like the manna. He's done all these truly amazing things for his people. Stuff that you would just, like your jaw would drop and you'd say, how could I ever deny that there's a good and gracious God? And then Moses gets called up on Mount Moriah and he's gone for a few days. And there was a group of Israel people who I believe had never really had faith in God. No matter what happened, they were hard-hearted and they were rebellious and wicked. And here's what how that's described. Verse 39 says this, But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him in their hearts, turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of their heavenly bodies. Folks, those words are are really chilling. God turned away and gave them over. See, they'd made this golden calf. This, this group of people who had rejected God said, no, we, we can't trust God. Let's, let's make our own God. Let's follow it. And at some point, God gave them over and said, okay, I'm giving you over to your wicked ways. And, and this is our word of warning, folks. And trust me, I am not someone who likes to use threats or scare tactics And one of the main reasons is in Romans chapter 2, the Bible says it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. It isn't threats. It isn't scare tactics. It's the kindness of God. But folks, I have to be truthful here. I have to teach what the Bible says. And apparently, at some point, God says, okay, 
You've rejected me and rejected me and rejected me. Your will be done. Not my will be done. Your will be done. And he gives you over to the worship of what you want. And he turns away. And no one knows when that moment will be. No one knows. How many chances will God give? It's, it's just not clear, folks. And, and you might say, you know, well, Al, look, I have free will. I've heard people say this. I'm going to wait till I'm old. You know, I like the way I'm living now, and, and I'll think about it then. I'll think about whether I want to give my life to God. Maybe when I'm really old and about to die, I'll give my life to God. Well, folks, I'm not sure that works if you look at what the Bible says. Because Jesus said, and this is John 6, 44, he said, No one can come to me unless my Father in heaven draws them to me. Listen to that again. No one can come to me. This is Jesus talking. No one can come to me unless my Father draws them. You'd think that Jesus, who himself is God, the most eloquent speaker who ever lived, could say, oh no, I can talk anybody into following me. He didn't say that. He said, no one can come to me unless my Father draws them to me. And I think what this is saying is that at some point, God says, okay, you've rejected me. It's clear you don't want me. And so I'm going to stop drawing you to Jesus. I'm going to give you over. And that is a word of warning. And and folks, like I just said, I I don't believe in scare tactics because I believe the kindness of God leads to repentance. But if you've never responded to God. The fact that you are here today means he hasn't given up on you. You're hearing his truth today. If you've never responded, why not respond today? We just talked about the capital murder trial of of the dead man walking and, and the capital trial of Stephen. Well, I think that each and every one of us is going to go through something quite similar, and it's called Judgment Day. Because the Bible says we will appear before the righteous judge, God himself. And the good news for Christians is, you know who's going to be there as our attorney? As attorney, I love this, okay? Who's going to be there as our attorney is Jesus himself. He will be our advocate. It says he lives to intercede for us. And I believe when I appear before that judgment seat, Jesus is going to look at his father, the judge, and he's going to say, Father... Hell's mine. I died for him. I paid his debt. The punishment that he deserves, it's already been paid. And I give him my righteousness. So he is not guilty. And that will be the sentence that's passed down on my behalf because of what Jesus has done. Why would you not respond to that kind of love that Jesus displayed? And if you decide to do that, then I rejoice with you. I'd love to hear about it. I'd love to talk with you about it. Or if you have more questions about it, come talk to Adam or me or, you know, one of the other leaders here at Rock Hills, and we can talk more about that. So that's the word of warning. And now we're going to get to the word of comfort. There's a word of comfort in this passage. You see, I Googled, like, what are the greatest fears in America, and Number one, believe it or not, was public speaking. (laughs) And, you know, two and three were snakes and dying. So I guess some people would rather, like, you know, get bit by a snake and die than speak in public. But anyway, I'm not sure exactly what that means. But but the bottom line is fear is very common when you're talking about death. And we have a death here. 
And I think there's some principles we can get out of it. And so let's take a look at it. So what's happened now is, as I said, G, uh, Stephen was charged with disobeying God and, and, you know, rejecting the Holy Spirit and speaking, you know, blasphemous things. And he finishes his Bible study, his soliloquy, by turning the tables on the Sanhedrin, on the court. By th- at the end of this whole Bible study where he's pointed out that they are the ones that, in fact, have been the rebels. They're the ones that disobey God. They just lose it. And here's what it says starting at verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. We we have to have a balanced view of death. It's evil. It's an enemy. The Bible says we were never meant to die. Romans says it this way. Sin came through a man and death came through sin. And it is our enemy. It's vicious. It's fearsome. If you don't fear death at some level, then you're not rational. It is a vicious enemy that wants to destroy us. But there's some comfort here. The first word of comfort is what happens to Stephen just before he dies. Look what he does. This is in verse 60. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do those words sound familiar? Those are the words of Jesus almost exactly. When he's being crucified, he's naked, he's hurting. They're mocking him, they're spitting on him. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I think what this indicates is that when our moment of death comes, Jesus is going to be there in an incredibly powerful way to the point where we evidence the grace of Jesus. Throughout the Bible, it says that when we are on our journey, we are on the journey of becoming more Christ-like. And so it sounds a lot like This principle will be carried through, but even more emphatically around the time of our death, to the point where we can demonstrate some of the qualities of Jesus. So that is an incredibly comforting point to me, that he will be there with me. And then there's another point here. It says in verse 56, Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Standing at the right hand of God. You see, throughout the Bible, whenever Jesus is pictured in heaven, how is he pictured? Seated on the throne of God. This is the only place in the whole Bible where Jesus is 
is image has an image of standing at the right hand of God. He's there to receive Stephen. He's there to go through this with him. You know, Hebrews 12, a famous passage. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us cast off everything that encumbers and the sin that so easily entangles. Let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. At the time of your death, I believe Jesus will be there with you. And I think there's a verse that many of you know that demonstrates that even more fully. Even though I've passed through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Psalm 23. When we pass through the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus will be there with us, and I believe he'll be standing to greet us as we make that transition. There is an amazing grace, I believe, that will occur. So yes, this is a fearsome enemy. But you know what? Paul writes in Corinthians that Jesus has put death under his foot. That's, that's a, the image there is like he's conquered it, like, like someone that you've conquered and defeated and you step on their neck. That's the image that's depicted of Jesus and death. And so Paul is able to proclaim at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You know, it's not easy to grasp these concepts, these principles. Because like I said, none of us has gone through that transition yet. But there was a, a story that I told in this cafeteria a little over two years ago about another man on death row. And, and it embodies so much of what I'm trying to communicate today, I decided to tell it again. So if you remember it, I'm not senile. I remember telling it two years ago. But it's a powerful story. And it's a man on death row by the name of Roger Hester. And Roger uh, was being visited by a man who worked in the governor's office in Florida. He was an assistant to the governor. He was a Christian. There's a ministry called Prison Fellowship, and he started visiting prisoners as part of Prison Fellowship. And he'd go on death row because he wanted these people to know the love of Jesus before they were executed. And basically no one was responding, but Roger in particular was a difficult case. He'd what he'd generally do is set his chair in front of a cell and read the Bible or talk to a guy. And he said most of the time, Roger would just lay on the floor of his cell, just moan. He was filthy. Sometimes there would be like roaches crawling over him. His whole, his cell was filthy. And for several weeks he did that. He'd come once a week. And he said he was just about to give up on Roger Hester because the, the guard said he's a hopeless case. And he got into his file, and he found out about Roger's background. He grew up in the mountains of West Virginia. His parents were drug addicts, incredibly abusive. They used to burn him with cigarettes, all kinds of torture. 
Uh, his dad, if he misbehaved, even at the age of 11 or 12, would lock him out of the house. This is the mountains of West Virginia. In order to just survive, he'd go down to the gas station and sleep on the floor of the men's room. He got into drugs himself. And as a teenager, moved to, to Florida to get to a warmer climate. And one night, strung out on drugs in his 20s, he murdered a whole family. And he was just a wreck. And Jim McCauley, that assistant to the governor, would sit. And he decided, you know, he's had such a tough life, I'll give him one more chance. And he sat outside his cell and was reading the Bible, still no response. And finally, he was about to to leave, and he said, Roger, John chapter 1 says this, Jesus promised, those who call on my name, I will give the right to become children of God. Just call Jesus' name, and he'll come live with you right here in this cell. And he said, he kind of heard a groan that kind of sounded like Jesus. Nothing more. And so he left that day. He said he came back a week later, and Roger Hester had cleaned up. He'd taken a shower, gotten a haircut. His whole cell was immaculate. He said, Roger, is that you? And he goes, yeah. He said, what's going on? He says, well, Jesus lives here now. I had to clean it up. And over the course of the next two years, they became very close friends. They did Bible studies together. Jim McCauley mentored Roger Hester. He helped him get a a high school equivalency degree. They started a Bible study with other inmates on death row. And he worked with the governor because Roger's uh, sentence, his, his execution was approaching. He worked with the governor and tried to get a stay of execution and was finally denied. And so just before the execution, he was talking to Roger. He said, Roger, is is there something you'd like that night? He said, you know what I'd like for you to do is just be in my cell with me, which was not within the rules at that time. He said, but just read read the Bible until I fall asleep. Would you do that for me? Jim got permission to be in his his cell. And sure enough, he read the Bible, and execution was for 8 o'clock the next morning. He said he read for several hours. At the end of that time, when he was sure Roger was asleep, he closed his Bible, went, kind of pulled the covers up and gave him a little peck on the cheek and and left. The next day, he's walking with Roger down to the execution chamber. And he sees a tear coming down Roger's cheek, and he goes, Roger, I, I know you're sad. I know this is difficult, but Jesus will be there with you. And Roger kind of smiled and looked at him. He says, you don't understand at all. These aren't tears of sadness. These are tears of joy. I have experienced the presence of Jesus more powerfully in the past couple weeks than ever in my life. And not only that, I've never known what a good father is. And tonight, I will be with my father, my real father. He said, besides, last night, for the first time in my life, someone tucked me in and gave me a kiss goodnight. And that day, Roger Hester was executed. But I think we can take great comfort in what happened there. He felt God's presence. Folks, death is our enemy. It is a horrible vicious enemy that wants to destroy us. But the Bible says that Jesus has defeated death. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? 
For even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. That is a Christian perspective on death. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for your presence. I thank you for your truth. I thank you that Jesus defeated death. I pray for all of us, Father. There's some in here who have had close friends, close relatives experience death. I pray for them, for their comfort. And I pray that we will all respond to your long-suffering, your patience, your graciousness, and give our lives and follow Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.